Hi, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Howard Drukarsh. I'm your host. And for those who don't know me, I've been a successful realtor in Canada's largest market for over 30 years. And in the latter part of my career, I co-founded Canada's largest independent brokerage, Right at Home Realty, with a roster of over 5,600 agents and growing. In 2020, I retired to start this podcast, and it's been a remarkable opportunity to meet highly successful and fascinating people in real estate and their related industries, to hear about their careers, and also to get their insight into our business. And today's guest is definitely one of those people. It's Kristen Duran. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be one of your guests. Well, listen, I, I've known you for a number of years, and I'm going to go through your bio, and I didn't realize how successful you were. I just knew you were successful. So let, let me start with this. Um, she, Kristen has been a top producing agent with a Toronto firm, Chestnut Park Real Estate uh, Brokerage, and that's an affiliate of Christie's. And uh, she's achieved over $651 million in new development sales to date. So anybody who's worked in new development knows, or even if you haven't, that's a lot of sales. And, and, and the quality of the sales is also interesting. She specializes in luxury real estate. She was also instrumental in the selling and the managing of the entire um, uh, sellout of the Shangri-La, of the condos above the Shangri-La in, in Toronto, which was a project of West Bank uh, Corporation. And we're going to get into that a little bit later about her connection with West Bank. Um, it's one of the world's most recognized developers, and we can hear from Kristen the work they've done. Um, she also assisted in um, and, and um, in Vancouver. There's a project called Vancouver House, and the architect, as they now call them, Starchitect, uh, Bjork uh, Ingels, uh, was named by CNN as one of the mo- uh, the building was named as one of the most anticipated buildings in 2020. Um, her recent endeavor has included a successful launch of uh, Bjark Engel's King Toronto, which is where I first met Kristen, and it, it achieved the highest average price per square foot for a project in the entire industry. And it's a, we'll talk a bit about that project because I found it fascinating when I was there. Um, she's worked with, with large and small developers um, um, and... Um, and also has done a lot of resale. She represents high-profile clients, including uh, professionals in sports, entertainment, and some uh, of um, the, the most prestigious Canadian addresses. So for those agents that are joining us, they're wondering, how did Kristen do it? So we're going to talk a bit about that as well. <laughs> um, she has great experience in sales, strategic marketing, uh, executive customer service, leasing management. Um, she has international and local clients and is adept at overseeing operations. Um, she's, she's really done every aspect of, of pre-construction. And, and uh, recently she moved to Chicago where she set up um, a company called KDW International Real Estate Advisors. And we'll talk about that. So Kristen, that's all the time we have. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. You covered it all. All right. Well, you know what? It's so fascinating because I knew you from one, you know, one project, really. We met... Um, well, West Bank launched uh, King Toronto, and actually, fortunately, I also got to meet uh, Ian Gillespie, and I got to meet Bjork Engels at that project, and uh, it was my introduction to this remarkable architect and, and developer and what they've done. So we're going to get into that a little bit later, but let me start with a, a question I always like to ask, and I think people love to hear. The answer to is, were there entrepreneurs in your family? 
No, actually, um, not not yet anyway, other than uh, what I've done. Although I, I wouldn't be surprised if my younger sister kind of followed in, in, in that footstep. She's also in, in real estate, but on the finance side mm-hmm. um, and it's very uh, entrepreneurial. But we came from two very hardworking parents. Um, our father worked for DeFasco. Um, since he was young and, and anyone who knows if you're working in factory work, it's, it's long, hard, very stressful, um, days, 12 hour shifts mm-hmm. overnight, most of the time holidays. And on the other side, our mom, who was also in real estate, built a very successful career when we were kids, um, in resale and, and later moved into development sales. So I think watching both of um, our parents work hard for their family and build successful careers, putting in long hours, never complaining, really set the foundation for me to have the same work ethic. And there's no doubt in this industry um, and the people that we've interviewed since the start of the podcast, that that is the constant among all the other constants is it's hard work. You, you can't be successful without a lot of hard work. You need some luck, of course. But I think that your parents set that role model for you. I think that probably really helped you figure out there's no uh, shortcut to get to where Absolutely. you want to And I always find it funny for people thinking about getting into real estate that say, well, I want to do it because I want to make my own hours. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, then you're probably not going to do very well. Right. It. And, and you're, you know, that is a misconception that it's easy. Certainly, that's the f- the first thing people think because they don't know between seeing a sign on the lawn and then seeing it sold. They think, "Oh, that, that must have been easy, right?" And mm-hmm. and all the other things. A- any realtor who's watching this knows uh, there's nothing easy. The, you know, the easy part comes like uh, in a, in a career like yours when it's a referral business, mm-hmm. right? When people contact you because of the service you've done for friends, relatives, clients of theirs then it's really fun. When they call you, it's <laughs> absolutely it's the most fun you can have in business. And uh and I always felt that way when I was selling. It it was just wow, you know, that the 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 ease with which you can do business when they just want you to come over and work with them, right? It's great. And and yours is luxury, so I'm sure the stories you have on luxury are, are fascinating as well. <laughs> That's a whole different world. I feel like we could write we could write a book on, on that whole segment. <laughs> well, I think that m- most agents don't get into the luxury field for a variety of reasons. But when, <clears throat> excuse me, once you get in there, the demands are even greater because people aren't spending 500000 a million. They're spending many millions. And, uh, and the demands on the, on the service they expect, it's got to be incredible. So, Kristen, uh, our viewers are always interested in what people did before real estate. So what was it for you? Well, real estate was really my first career. I happened upon it when I was quite young. Um, I did have some fun jobs through through high school and university, like most of us have had, kind of trying out different things. Um, some more fun ones. When I was in high school for a few summers, I worked as an events coordinator for a language school. I take the ESL students around Ontario to different excursions. So that got me to kind of be able to explore our own um, province in ways I hadn't been able to and, and become comfortable with people from you know, different backgrounds and languages. Um, I also worked at Mercedes Benz, 
which is where I think I began to appreciate the strong um, luxury brand and, and symbolic value to consumers, and which has really carried over into my real estate career. Um, it's interesting because real estate really is a, a people's business, as you know, and it's all about networking and, and building strong, trustworthy relationships and all past job experiences, no matter how small, were really teaching me these life, life lessons I still use today, and I didn't know at the time. Well, I think I think that for most people, it's you know the early jobs are the ones that give you the exposure to all the different things you could do in the world. And I always thought the more you do in in your early career, the better you have a chance for knowing what you want to do full time. And right. uh, you know, I always say the same thing you just said. Uh, real estate, you're not you know, it's not about bricks and mortar; it's about people, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're dealing with bricks and mortar, but it's uh, you know the. The variety of people you deal with is fascinating. Let's just put it. Well, that and way. you know, with all the agents you manage throughout your life, right? And that that too is an interesting part of the career. So. <laughs> but we can't go into that today. So, and and then what motivated you with all of those different backgrounds to go into real estate? What got you started? And and also, where did you start? So I had a completely different plan, which I probably you hear quite often. Um, I was enrolled at U of T first year and I was going to be a criminal lawyer and that was that. And my mom, who as I mentioned before, worked in real estate at that time was managing a project and just said, Oh, you know, you can come help me on weekends and make a little money for school. And I thought, okay, why not? So I did that. And, uh, I, I just, absolutely loved it. I was really nothing more than a tour guide at that point. Um, but I really fell in love with the interaction with the clients and especially being part of you know, such a big milestone that a lot of these people were deciding on, um, on purchasing. And this, this point was a retirement community. So it was their last and kind of probably maybe one of their more, um, impactful decisions they were going to make in their real estate uh, lifetime. So that particular development shared a presentation center with uh, Baker real estate projects. And after a few months of getting to know them just by sharing the space, they offered me an administrative position at one of their sites. From there, I grew and evolved from having my own projects as administrator to becoming a licensed real estate agent to becoming a sales manager and now forming my own advisory company. Uh, so it just from that point just became a natural progression and I can't imagine doing anything else, especially not uh, criminal law. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's there, there's no comparison between the two no. careers. So obviously, and you're a really uh, engaging person. Uh, and and I think people relate to that in sales, right? You need you need to be honest. You need to be authentic. You know, people will relate to that. I mean, I think that's the key mm -hmm. to sales. So you're all of those. The one thing I really wanted to get into today was about the. Let's start with the serpentine exhibit, and uh, uh, I was one of the the guests that was invited, uh, and I had no idea what this was all about, and I had no idea where it was going to lead to. And all I knew was that there were a lot of productive agents at the site, and there was incredible structure that nobody had ever seen before. And then there was uh, um, there was a sort of a uh, not a question and answer, but there was a presentation 
by uh, Ian Gillespie of, of uh, uh, West Bank Corp and the Bjark Engels of BIG. And that's where I started to think, wow, this is not typical Toronto architecture. So let's talk a bit about that whole experience for you. For sure. Well, the Serpentine alone explains why West Bank is a developer unlike really any other. It's not just about bringing a product to the market, selling and, and moving on. Their philosophy has always been changing um, the landscape and changing the uh, skyline and having an impact forever. Uh, King Toronto is unique in so many ways. First, you have a celebrity architect, like you mentioned, uh, Bjark Ingels, who's responsible for creating some of the world's most iconic and innovative structures. And we're not talking just condos. Um, and it was important to share the story why he, someone who's so respected worldwide, chose Toronto as his next uh, location for one of his landmarks. So Bjark is a very coveted architect, very forward thinking when it comes to technology. For example, in Copenhagen, he designed, and you probably remember this from the, from the uh, Serpentine, he designed a waste to energy plant, which also incorporated a ski slope mm -hmm. um, for public to be able to ski in the winter. In New York, he designed something called the Big U, which proposes to protect lower Manhattan from storms and from floods, similar to what happened with Hurricane Sandy. So the, the Serpentine really was a piece of art in itself. The structure was originally designed for the Serpentine Gallery Pavilion in London's Kensington Market back in 2016. Mm. And it was shipped to King's site and rebuilt there. And we hosted a number of events. Um, it was also open for a free public exhibition. And it took attendees like yourself through a journey of what Big had accomplished internationally and how King Toronto too would be an architectural marvel. So King in itself, it's, uh, as you mentioned, finally bringing some interesting world-class architecture to Toronto. It's been long overdue. And uh, this project really is moving away from that monotonous glass rectangle that we see all, all over the city. And uh, it's going to redefine King West neighborhood. It incorporates the heritage buildings seamlessly into the modern design. You have the 500 feet of frontage along King with the retail and open community space in the center. So there's a lot of really unique features that having the Serpentine there on site kind of as a preview, because there's a lot of similarities between the design of the structure and then the mountainous design that King Toronto is going to bring on King West. Yeah, it, it, you know, it doesn't do it justice, but I, I just wanted to talk about it because as someone who was introduced to a, a new way of design and a new way of building, that was, that was my introduction. Uh, after that, I started following uh, Big, uh, Bjork Engels group on social media, and, and the projects they do are globally interesting. I mean, it's... Yeah. So, you know, you kind of tied into a pretty good guy. <laughs> it's a pretty good guy to be tied into. You ha you meet someone like him and you really think 
you're just amazed at, at their mind and, and how they can create and come up with these, not just designs, but the, the innovation, the technology that they're, right. they're creating. Um, I, I saw recently that they were 3D printing structures that they're you know, potentially planning on using on a Mars really? <laughs> development. So like this is literally out of this world, <laughs> the stuff that, that someone like uh, Bjork works on. And so to be able to be involved in project like King and Vancouver house, and it really just um, opens up your mind to the possibilities. Oh, it's uh, fascinating. How, how did uh, Bjork and Ian connect? Well, Ian Gillespie, how did those two come together? Um, oh man, I have to remember how they initially met. Well, they did the Vancouver House project together. Oh, he was um, one of the architects that that Ian wanted to that Ian looked at having designed his Vancouver House project, which he did. And um, mm-hmm. as I mentioned, and you mentioned, is voted in CNN as one of the most anticipated buildings. So, how they initially met, I can't remember. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, so let's move on to another project that you've been uh, so involved with, which is the Shangri-La. Now, you know, again, in terms of luxury in Toronto, it's uh, perceived, if not the most, one of the most luxurious uh, uh, places to live. Um, tell us how that all came together and where you, where you got involved in that. So I was hired uh, back in 2007. That's actually when the project uh, first launched and uh, believe it or not branded hotel condo residences did not really exist at that time and the only five-star hotel in Toronto was the, four, the old Four Seasons so in terms of the sales and marketing of, of that project we were entering a very challenging market by not only asking top dollar and you'll be so blown away when we talk about what we were considering top dollar at that time between 700 and 1300 dollars a square foot wow <laughs> uh, for a product that many torontonians just didn't quite understand yet because we didn't have that uh, hotel condo five-star brand uh, in the city so on top of that we had trump tower had already launched the ritz carlton was launching the new four seasons was launching at the same time so we went from having really no inventory in the city that's comparable to over or around a thousand units offered in those in those buildings Um, and what was interesting too is we were finally bringing large units to the market which really the west bank was very forward thinking at that time because the market didn't even know it needed it at Mm -hmm. that you know we, we were all used to smaller uh, 700 square feet for two bedroom unit mm-hmm. buildings. So here we were coming out with 2,000 two bedroom, mm-hmm. 2,000 square feet two bedroom units, uh, two story 4,000 square foot units, mm-hmm. and there was a number of large units coming to the market. Um, but it's interesting because if you look at what's in demand today and still in high demand, are these large suites where mm-hmm. people can comfortably live in and transition in and out of a house. So what sets a project like Shangri-La and these other projects like Four Seasons and the Ritz-Carlton apart is the brand. Um, We knew that people who traveled and had stayed at Shangri-La's internationally 
would understand the value. Mm -hmm. So we had, when we launched, we had a big international campaign initially. We also tapped into the clients who knew the Shangri-La Vancouver and other West Bank projects. And now it's really one of the best projects in the city. Who doesn't love the hotel lobby? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, people who bought there early on have done very, very well. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's one you know you've been, and that's why I thought you'd be a great guest. You've you've been involved with these projects that most people know them, but they don't know anything about the background. And you know you're you're so uh, tied to the background of these. The thing that we've all had to deal with uh, in the last year is the pandemic. And and how did the pandemic affect projects that you were going to work on or that you currently work on? Well, on a, I'll start on a positive note. I don't think any of us anticipated how well pricing overall would have held up in a pandemic like COVID. It was very daunting at the beginning, not knowing what this meant. And in terms of working with clients, a lot of buyers were in this wait and see mentality, especially when it came to condominiums. The thought of being close to others, being in elevators, Mm -hmm. amenities being shut down, needing and wanting more space than a a small condo unit can provide during a lockdown. Um, So for a while, we saw people wanting to move out from downtown. They're wanting, you know, they're, they're working from home. They don't have to commute anymore. They want more space. They want to be outdoors. But many of us who really truly understood and understand the market knew that this was short-sighted and that, you know, leaving downtown, they were only going to want to come back <laughs> in a short while. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've you know, started to see. People will always want to come back to, to a city. It's where the life is. It's where the restaurants are, the culture. And two, as we've been able to understand more about COVID, as the population's getting vaccinated and there's a light at the end of the tunnel, more people are moving back downtown and prices are higher than ever, really. Um, from a development standpoint, it's caused us to think how we can improve on our buildings and how we can make buildings more safe for residents. So, you know, you're looking at touchless technologies and ventilation, et cetera. So it's, um, I think it's impacted. There's been some positive things that have come, come out of it. Okay. And I, you know, and I think that's, again, like every negative, there are positives and it's just, you don't know when the things, you don't know when it started, there are going to be some positives, but Fortunately, it seems that we're we're on a recovery track out of it, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it won't be the same, of course. But but it's better than it was in in the last year. Technology is is a topic everyone's talking about, and and for you, um, what are the most important technology tools that that you you use now, or that you found really helpful in what you're doing? Well, real estate is so much about lifestyle. And people just love looking at all things real estate. Um, So I find Instagram is a really perfect tool because it gives you that opportunity to post fantastic photos, fantastic videos. And you can also promote yourself in a way and and, and your projects or properties listings in a way that's not too salesy. So, um, you know, real estate is always captivating to people. So you get a lot of, 
get a lot of reach out of just one image or one video. Also, I think, as you mentioned about getting into a, a place of referrals where you have a great client network and database and you really start to get referrals from, from your clients. So staying in front of your audience is a really great way um, and important to, to stay front of mind. So having a good database and there are really good platforms, even for, you know, people that are starting up and maybe they don't have the, the funds to build a big website or, or pay for a large CRM. There are tools like something like MailChimp that makes it easy for people to, that aren't tech savvy to kind of do their own communication and stay front of mind regularly with their clients. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I sometimes look back on my career when I, when I was, um, uh, early in my career, I, I forget who I was talking to one of our guests. Um, actually, it might have been John Lucing, where if you were trying to communicate with past clients, it wasn't so hard. You just had to first photocopy things, then you had to put stuff in envelopes, then you had to address the envelopes, then you had to take the envelopes, stamp them, and take them to the post office. So this is a lot better, a lot easier. Um, I think we really, like you're saying, we have, we have so much at our fingertips to use and. Uh, we, we don't really understand what it used to be like, all that hard work. Right. It's a whole different world, uh, and it's not going to get any less techno technological, no. as you know. Um, I know that uh, you're now licensed in Illinois. You work in the Chicago area. Um, and coming from Toronto, going to that, era, that uh, part of the con country, what's it been like for you, and what are you finding? And is there some parallels or completely different to Toronto? You know... It's, um, I've really, I've enjoyed the learning curve. Definitely. It's been interesting to be able to compare, um, and to look, learn about different programs offered here that we might not have in, in Ontario. Um, and I feel that being from Toronto, we really take from, for granted what a robust market we, we work at really being real estate professionals. You can pretty much guarantee when you purchase a property in the GTA that it will appreciate and quite significantly over a few years. In the U.S., it's not that way necessarily. You're still seeing people selling now for less than they purchased prior to the crash in 2008. So it really puts in perspective when you compare average prices in Toronto to other big cities like Toronto where... But now in Toronto, you're averaging over 1.6 million for a detached house and over 700,000 for a condo. By comparison, here in Chicago, you're averaging 760,000 for a detached house hmm. and 360,000 for a condo. That's under $300 a square foot. Like, I don't think we've seen that price in, in Toronto and who knows, 15 years. So people always ask me, what does everyone do in Toronto to be able to afford these prices? <laughs> but it's easy not, you don't always think that way when you're in the bubble. So the difference is the part, parts in the U.S., you have a very drastic impoverished and low income neighborhoods. And then that's really skewing the average. And those areas have a really difficult time improving and getting out of that cycle. Mm -hmm. 
Also, what I find interesting is that there are more options for people here in Chicago other than just a high-rise condo or a house in, in the suburbs. So Chicago's done a good job of building vertically, but in a more low-rise capacity. So in the city, you can go to different neighborhoods and there are a number of two or three story buildings that look like a single family brownstone on the outside. And they may have between two to four units inside, which have been condominiumized. And it provides an alternative to being right downtown in a high rise or having to move out to the suburbs. And you can do that affordably. So, you know, it's been interesting to offer these different opportunities to clients I work with back in Toronto who are, you know, they own property there and then they're looking to diversify and invest in a different market. So Chicago has been interesting for that because to me, it's still very undervalued and uh, there's a lot of room to grow. Hmm, interesting. And uh, of course, uh, those that are not in real estate know it has the, de- the best deep dish pizza in the world. <laughs> so They do. Right, I know. Um, uh, now about you specifically, what, what's been your biggest success in real estate? Somewhere to ask you that question. I was trying to think of what that was. And I think it was when I had a client call me a few years ago because this was a, a client from Toronto I had worked with because he was looking at purchasing a billion dollar development in Chicago and asked me my opinion on if he should buy it or not. And it was my opinion that he was going to decide. And I thought, okay, this is a lot of pressure. <laughs> but it, it made me realize, like, okay, I've, I've made it. If someone that I respect, um, like this person, is looking for my opinion on something this major. So um, I just knew at that time that my successes in Canada – and my international relationships would be desirable anywhere. And it's really what sparked my decision to form my company. Okay. And, and the, uh, the other thing that we've all had to deal with, uh, what's, what, was, what has been your biggest challenge in your career? And what did you learn from it? So as we were talking about COVID before, kind of somehow having a silver lining there, I think COVID probably was my biggest uh, challenge. Firstly, I had just signed my first development contract with a client the week the lockdown started. Mm. So really bad timing. Um, additionally, it was it wasn't it was a no brainer for me moving here and keeping my business in Toronto and working here and having a family here because it was only an hour flight back and forth, and I was doing it at least once a month. So with the lockdown overnight borders closed. I wasn't able to travel anymore. I wasn't able to fly in for meetings. So it was really just having to figure out how to overcome that. And then in addition to that, I had, we have a one-year-old at that time. We just found out we're expecting our second baby. So it's like, okay, how are we going to overcome all of this? So I think, um, we're fortunate being in an industry where we have the technology and tools that have been able to help us overcome some of the issues of COVID, virtual tours and signing deals without 
ever stepping foot in a property and just relying on video footage, Zoom project launches. So it taught me that there are always going to be challenges that come out of the out of the blue, but in time we figure out ways to adapt. And we're fortunate to be an industry that's done so well throughout COVID because there really are so many others that mm-hmm. have been much worsely affected. So, so you moved to Chicago and you decide to start your company, uh, KDW International Real Estate Advisors. Um, tell our audience what your company does. So really it's um, a consulting and advisory company to work with developers on their sales and marketing. So either from you know, the inception when they're looking at land and deciding what to do with that land or if it's mid-sales program, looking at how you know, maybe they're um, stagnant and they're looking at ways to you know, re- revitalize and revamp their efforts. So I really, the more I spoke with people about Toronto's real estate market and how vibrant it is, it made me realize how we in the condominium industry have a really solid understanding of sales and marketing, down, really down to an art developers outside of Canada are so blown away that how we're able to take a project, market it, sell it out or close to it sight unseen so fast between the pre-marketing, the pricing, the strategies. And also, as you know, when we met uh, outside broker engagement, that is such a, a vital part of sales and marketing in these projects. So it made me realize that there really is a market for this elsewhere. And uh, really Canadian developers and sales and marketing companies should be really patting themselves on the back for creating such a vibrant industry. And I'm fortunate to be, have been able to learn from some really great mentors, such as Ian Gillespie, uh, Riz Danji, people that have done such a fantastic job making the market it, what it is today and uh, I'm kind of branching out and exploring that now in other cities. Hmm. And actually we had Riz as a, as a guest earlier on and I, I did meet him at uh, uh, the launch or the, I guess the Serpentine, but I also knew Riz years ago before all early in his career. And that's the other thing I find fascinating about doing the uh, podcast is a lot of the people that I, that I get to interview are people either I've known indirectly or directly. And just like you and just like Riz and I suppose just like me, we survived a really hard industry. Like if there's a, an industry with more competition than real estate, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's it's a tough one. But but those that survive just have some special skills. And that leads me to my last question. So here we go. We're going to have viewers who've listened to what you've done, not in real estate, and thinking, oh, this beats what I'm doing right now. And so if someone were to ask you now, Kristen, um, about getting into pre-construction, uh, what would you tell them? You know, for me, it's always really special driving down a street and passing a building that you've been a part of creating that will be there forever. It's just, it's this feeling I can't describe. And that alone makes me say, if you want that, that feeling to be part of something like big, then definitely. Um, if you love immersing yourself and becoming a specialist in one area, 
pre-construction can be a really great fit. There's really so much to learn and understand from zoning to construction methods to pricing and in more complex buildings, you know, relationships from between commercial entities and condo corporations. There's a lot to, to learn and understand. And if you're involved from the inception of a project all the way to the delivery, it can take many, many years of your life. For me, for example, I was working on Shangala for over 10 years. Hmm. So I think for people that like that commitment, that like to be really immersed in in something and seeing it to the very end, then pre-construction is a great fit. And also being able to see then someone well, 10 years later that you sold to walking around a building and just absolutely loving where they live. And that's completely rewarding. For someone else looking for something a little more, you know, um, fast paced onto the next, maybe it's, it's not the best fit, but, um, otherwise I just absolutely love it. Well, I, you know, and, and you, you, uh, project that. So, so my closing comment would be, obviously this was a great career for you and Toronto will just have had uh, one less criminal lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you for joining us. I know that you have a young one somewhere in, in, in the near uh, part of your place looking for you. So I'm going to say thanks. And uh, we'll stay in touch. And good luck with your company. Uh, it was a delight to see you again. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you, too. Bye. Bye. Take care. We'd like to thank Kristen Duran. And we'd like to thank you for joining us today. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe on your favorite podcast network or on our YouTube channel. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us one of two ways. You can email us at info at rewithhd.com or on our website, rewithhd.com. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.